A reading from the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. The word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So in the opening credits of the Coen Brothers movie, The Big Lebowski, as every sermon starts, the camera follows a tumbleweed along through Los Angeles and out to the beach. And the song, The Tumbling Tumbleweed, is playing. And the tumbleweed, of course, if you've seen the movie, you know it's a framing device. It's a stand-in for the main character, the dude, who just bumbles from one thing to the next with no ambition, no real telos to guide him. He's just this tumbleweed, just being blown by the wind into one disaster after another. On the other hand, when you enter the London Museum of Natural History and you head up the stairs, they have a slice of a 1,300-year-old giant sequoia. It's so big around that you can't even get your arms around it. And attached to this display is a timeline that shows you all of the empires, all of the plagues, all of the scientific discoveries and kings and nations that this single tree outlasted by centuries. Our lessons this evening work beautifully as they so often do as a symphony, telling us, I think, in large part about these two images a tumbleweed that's just sort of blown about, and a giant sequoia that has strength to withstand all sorts of things. And I want us to be able to hear each section of the orchestra filling out the richness of the main melodic line that scripture so beautifully repeats, and that is, the true God is a God who creates and brings forth life, and all that he creates is good and very good, and this very same God has defeated death forever in Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible is about. That's the melody line that gets played over and over again. And so you can hear the psalmist striking up the rhythm section, this constant tempo that those who delight in Torah, in the teaching of Yahweh, this one true God, they will be like trees, 
planted by streams of water, with leaves that don't wither. They will bear fruit in keeping with their telos. They're going to bear fruit in their kind, and the wicked, though, are like dead tumbleweeds that even a slight breeze just blows away. Then Jeremiah comes in with the brass section. Those who trust in themselves, he says, are tumbleweeds. They're battered about in a desert. They who trust in their own flesh become wispy, dead little shrubs in an uninhabited land. But those who trust in the true creator God, they are, again, like trees planted by streams of water such that they don't get anxious even when a year-long drought comes their way. They continue to bear fruit. Our gospel lesson adds in the woodwinds as Christ speaks, frankly, difficult words in his sermon on the plain. Blessing upon the poor, the hungry, and the weeping, and woe to the rich, the full, the laughing. And then St. Paul brings in the strings, causing us to look unflinchingly into the white light that sits at the core of Christianity. If Christ has not risen from the dead, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And if it is only for this life that we have hoped in Christ, then we are to be pitied above all others. But Paul says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. This symphony, while one of the most beautiful strains of music that the world has yet to fully hear, also has the urgency of a fire alarm. Wake up! If Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, then his series of blessings and woes should cause us to reflect on our own lives with soberness. As Johnny so beautifully pointed out last week in his homily, we may not be called to the same practical abandonment of everything, such as the apostles were, but we are called to relinquish our hold on everything. In recognition that, as we say every week, all things come from you, O Lord, and of your own have we given you. I think this is where the logic of the church calendar can serve to assist us. We have seasons of feasting and fasting, and these rotations of discipline help us to clear the clutter from our minds. They serve to stretch out our fingers so that we could unlearn this habit of grasping. But if we keep hearing the symphony, we must recognize that a life of discipline for discipline's sake, while it may facilitate all sorts of mental or spiritual or physical health and wholeness, it is a far cry from the life of resurrection. There are all kinds of religions that have ascetical practices, but Christianity's ascetical practices are supposed to be extremely different because they are radically different. They are different at the root. It may seem counterintuitive, but it is asceticism, the giving up of sensual goods for the sake of spiritual goods. Note again, it's not a denial of the material good. It is a relinquishing of truly good things so that they can be given back to us as gifts. It is this asceticism. It's been said that is the art of practicing death and resurrection ahead of the final judgment. 
That's why we do these cycles of feasting and fasting. It's not about just making ourselves somehow better. Better and worse has no, has no target in a world of resurrection and death. It's all about practicing ahead of time the death and resurrection that we will all undergo. The resurrection of Christ stands in the middle of human history as an incontrovertible fact. There is not a single other explanation within the most rigorous expressions of historiography, psychology, or sociology for the explosion of Christianity around the Mediterranean world. Were the disciples lying? Were they mentally deranged? Or were they in search of some sort of spiritual power over people? None of these things would make sense of the suffering that they were willing to endure. St. Paul almost anticipates this. Within a few verses of where our lesson ends off tonight, he says, If with merely human hopes I fought with wild animals at Ephesus, what would I have gained? What indeed? To say nothing of St. Stephen's willingness not simply to die a painful death, but to be declared guilty of blasphemy by the most powerful leaders of his own religion. You don't just wake up overnight and decide that you're okay with that. For St. Paul to reorient his most deeply held religious beliefs to undergo torture, beatings, imprisonment, shipwreck, and eventually martyrdom. For St. Peter to embrace unclean foods and welcome Gentile pagans into the household of God, to stand up in front of thousands of his own countrymen and be accused of going insane, but to preach the message of the Messiah who came and died and rose again from the dead. A message that St. Peter was so convinced of he would not recant, choosing instead to be crucified upside down. And one of the slave girls being torn by wild beasts, facing death with more serenity than battle-hardened generals. What of aristocratic women who risked losing every vestige of wealth, all the comfort and pleasure of being highborn, having it ripped away from them and themselves thrown into prison and threatened with death if they would just deny that Jesus is God and that he rose from the dead, it would all go away. And none of them did. Why? You wouldn't do that for a lie. You wouldn't do it because you were out of your mind. The first second you see that lion snapping its jaws, you're going you're gonna to rethink really quick, aren't you? They had no spiritual power over anybody to speak of. They were, they were in, a, in a nation state that did not understand anything that they were doing. This kind of behavior doesn't happen because these people had some sort of profound spiritual experience or an inner light of emotional equilibrium. The resurrection is not a metaphor for rebirth, some sort of spiritual cleansing or interior alteration. The apostles were eyewitnesses. They saw the Messiah in the flesh. They heard his voice. They know what his body smells like. They touched him. They ate with him before he died. They saw him die. They saw his body placed in the tomb, and then they saw, heard, smelled, and felt his resurrection body. So I'll say again, the resurrection of Christ stands in the middle of history as an incontrovertible fact. 
And when the apostles started to put together all of the things that Christ had taught them when they were traveling around Galilee together, and they recalled his transfiguration, and they heard afresh the stories that his mother told of his birth, they realized that his resurrection was no mere resuscitation, but it was actually the inauguration of a new creation. This was much more than someone going blank on the table and being shocked back into life. This was the beginning of a new world order. Because when Christ came into contact with death, death was destroyed. And in that, the one thing that humanity and indeed the entire material universe has universally experienced time out of mind, death, became entirely reordered. Death is no longer ultimate. Its black hole has been illuminated and destroyed by the uncreated light. Non-existence is no longer the final word. So here I come back to asceticism as the art of practicing death and resurrection ahead of the final judgment, back to the symphony, back to the sequoia and the tumbleweed. Because if this is true, if Jesus is alive, not in a hallmark greeting card, sappy sort of internal optimism sense, but if Jesus Christ is actually alive, a king who dwells in unapproachable light, who has retained the stigmata of the men who use their tools to kill him. If Jesus is alive as a monarch who didn't simply defeat the tools used by his enemy, he defeated the capital E enemy, right? The Romans were really great at using death as a tool, but what ends up happening? Where have all the Caesars gone? Who was wielding whom? Death. The Caesars were simply death's hammer, and yet it is Christ who sits upon the throne who has swallowed up death in one gulp. And he sits enthroned above the cherubim and the seraphim, having conquered death itself, and from his vantage point, the entire earth is his footstool, and he has embarrassed the devil in a public display, dismantling the one tool the devil had. If this man, this resurrected king, this unparalleled God, Christ Pentocrator, the Almighty, the Lord of hosts, is real and alive, then everything about our lives must change. This is why just a couple of weeks ago I insisted so strongly that wrapped up in salvation and being found in Christ when he returns is this idea of presenting ourselves as his mystical body in worship before the Father, entering into the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, by which he defeated death, so that we might be brought further into his kingdom and have our eyes more illuminated, more attuned to the light of his presence. It's been said that the Christian at liturgy receives a light in the eyes which is an eschatological power of seeing through the material to the spiritual, through the visible to the invisible, through the created to the uncreated. That's why we gather, to have our senses attuned to this kingdom that has defeated death. Being an eschatological people is so key and intrinsic to who we are as members of the church not simply because we know how the story ends, 
that Christ will be all in all, but because that ending has already burst forth. It has been unleashed in Christ's resurrection from the dead. So as people who have been brought through the waters of baptism and so united to him in his death-destroying death, so now everything we do is animated by the Holy Spirit oxygenated blood that flows through the veins of Christ's mystical body, the church. Or to put it much better and more poetically, we're like trees planted beside streams of living water, keeping our fruit in season. We're not just waiting for the end with optimism. We are, especially in our liturgical work together here at the Eucharist, experiencing and becoming the passage from this world to the next, from the kingdom of earth to the kingdom of heaven, from original creation to new creation, from death to resurrection. And the Christian word we have for this is joy. It's not optimism, it's joy. I know the world's a mess. I have Twitter. I deleted it from my phone again. Deleted it from my phone again. Everybody should do that. But do you see that the hope is not, it's not here. The hope has broken in to here. And we are being drawn with it back into that next world. And it is from this vantage point when the liturgy draws us into the dimension of the kingdom, the dimension of resurrection, that we can begin to see finally, clearly, the world and our real place in it. We live in a system of tumbleweed. It's founded upon greed and consumption, and if you will allow it, it will convince you that you got to just keep on tumbling. Take in more and more and more and consume as much pleasure and adventure and comfort as you can. But in the liturgy, we are made to realize that the most precious gifts, gifts are things that are received, not grasped. We are reminded that we were created not as consumers who try to shove the whole world into our insatiable stomachs, but as priests who were meant to offer up the world in a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to our Creator. What we are doing here is not an escape from the world, but neither is it an accommodation to the world's insistence that we exist in a continual cycle of consuming and being consumed. Here, we bring the entire world with us, and as priests, we offer it up to God as we are drawn along with our offering into his kingdom. And the more that we do so, then we will become just as Moses, after having met with God in the tabernacle, had the glory of God radiating from his face. So we too will re-enter the world as people who have been illuminated by the implacable resurrection joy of Jesus. Death has been trampled down by our great and glorious King. May we move back into the world with ears that have been recalibrated to hear the thunder of the cherubim and seraphim as they cry, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.